from API. This is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm your host, Jane Van Ryan. Have you looked at the energy legislation recently introduced into the U.S. Congress? There are two major bills drafted in response to today's oil and gasoline prices. But the question is, will either bill really help consumers? Lou Pugliarisi, President and CEO of the Energy Policy Research Foundation, is here to discuss that question with us and perhaps provide some answers. Welcome, Lou. Welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Let's start with some testimony that you recently gave to the House Judiciary Committee up on Capitol Hill. One of the topics that you touched on was the amount of oil that's not available today. You mentioned that there are a number of countries that normally would be pumping more, but right now they can't because of a variety of reasons. So is that having an impact on uh, crude oil prices, or what, in your estimation, has really led to today's prices? Right. Uh, you know, I think there were two b- basic issues that we wanted to make sure the committee had a, a grasp upon. One was not just what's happening to production in the current period, but also how expectations play in the market. So we actually took the committee through a, a short history, which I think is very instructive. We went back to the 1973-74 uh, Arab oil embargo, and we, we went through the day and pointed out, look, look, the Arab oil embargo was not so much a successful embargo as it was an indication to the marketplace that a great vast reserves within the Middle East would no longer be developed through competition among private companies, but under the national direction of state oil companies or state uh, state entities. And this was a signal to the marketplace, not so much that a lot of oil would be missing in the current period, but that future increases in production would come along much more slowly in a much more uncompetitive fashion. Uh, also, the 79... Uh, Iraq-Iranian war and the Iranian revolution, there was a set of expectations then as well. We didn't lose that much production in 1979, but expectations on future increases from Iraq and Iran were also down, you know, brought down considerably. Once again, it's not just the oil you lose in the current period, but the expectations on future oil. And so we, we went through the history of that in, in much detail, and it's, on, it's in the testimony, easily available to anyone. And we then decided to take, let's take a look at what's happened over the last seven, eight years. And if you recall, between 2001 and 2003, we call that the era of positive expectations. And if you took the Energy Information Agency's forecast of capacity additions and new production, it wasn't that bad. And if you looked around the world, and you looked at Venezuela, Canada, the United States. Remember, George Bush was coming into office. There was expectations that the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge would be opened up, that we would have more accelerated leasing offshore. Uh, Nigeria was moving along very, very well at the time. No major civil strife. Uh, Venezuela had very active foreign oil company participation, rapid increases in investment. And even Russia had a very positive outlook at that time. So as we went around the world, in this early period, I think that the market and the players in the market were saying, look, it's not only that existing production seems to be ample, but we can expect ample additions to new production as China and India increase. 
their their demand is you have rising incomes. Of course, we would expect oil prices to rise as world incomes rose, and the uh, addition of new reserves doesn't keep up quite as uh, quickly, or, or we move to higher cost production. But what we had was we call a sort of series of unfortunate events. You feel like almost a perfect storm of bad luck. And around the world, as you call, after the Iraqi invasion, we didn't the development of the Iraqi reserves did not take place because of the security situation there. Uh, we began to have civil strife in Sudan and uh, rebel activity in Nigeria. Chavez takes over in Venezuela, not only reducing current production, but substantially uh, reducing expectations on new production. And when you go through all the numbers, we have higher taxes and resource nationalism in Russia. When you go through all the numbers, we think we're anywhere from four to five million barrels a day are missing from the world oil market that the world oil market expected to be there in the early part of the new millennium. And this, in our view, is the fundamental issue. These are not what we call below the ground or peak oil or geologic problems. These are above the ground problems having to do with governments and uh, civil strife, war, resource nationalism. And it really indicates that the law of supply and demand has had a huge impact on the price, I would presume. Absolutely. And until we these expectations shift, um, I don't think we're going to get much relief. And so what we need to do is begin to think about what kind of strategies can we use, what kind of, if you like, counter-OPEC strategies would fundamentally shift the set of expectations in the market. Well, then, when the legislators asked you that question, uh, a question such as, what can this nation do to give consumers relief from high prices? What did you tell them? I said one of the things we can do is we, we need to develop our own lower cost, cost-effective reserves as quickly as possible. This is the most counter-effective, uh, this is the most uh, cost-effective counter-OPEC strategy. Uh, it might, you know, we, we were perfectly consistent with their own opinion on halting the fill to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that has occurred. Perhaps someone ought to take a hard look at whether we ought to use this reserve if these uh, disruptions continue. But we believe we're in the midst of a rather substantial disruption in oil supplies, and that we're part of the problem in the sense that we had an opportunity to develop our reserves, and we did not. Let's look at some of the proposals on the table in Congress today. Now, you're an economist. You're not a politician. We're going to set politics aside for the moment. Let's look at one bill right now called Consumers First Energy Act, which calls for windfall profits tax on oil companies. Would a windfall profits tax help consumers? No, unless the strategy proposed by Congress will put more oil into the market, we don't see that it will give any relief. In fact, the Return on investment in the American oil companies is not substantially different than the S&P 500. And there are certain industries that even do better than the U.S. You hear these very large numbers, um, total profits, of Exxon Mobil or Chevron, Texaco, but those numbers are big because the companies themselves are quite big. The, the capital they have is just enormous because they require that sort of efficiency to do the major engineering and construction projects to bring in these higher cost reserves. Well, let's look at another proposal, Lou. What about this idea to roll back existing tax incentives for oil and natural gas companies, which are estimated to be worth, oh, maybe about $17 billion over 10 years? My understanding is that those so-called tax incentives are the general 
tax treatment all manufacturing facilities in the United States are granted. Those tax provisions were provided by the Congress to bring all American companies in line with the tax rates of their competitors in Europe and Asia. So in that sense, the oil company is not, the oil companies are not receiving anything any other manufacturing facility in the United States is now receiving. And, and once again, there's no evidence that a windfall profits tax or any kind of changing the financial structure of the oil companies is going to put more reserves or more production onto the market. This is the key. We need to increase supply. Well, is there any reason to suspect then that this proposal that would authorize the Attorney General to go after OPEC members for price collusion would have any impact? Well, I don't understand what uh, extratorial reach we really have with OPEC. These are decisions made by sovereign governments on how much they should produce. By the way, decisions we have made. So under the thinking of the uh, Attorney General, uh, under the Congress on this, then even the U.S. could be named as a member of that suit, I would think, because we have been as public more responsible given the fact that we keep over 80% of our offshore reserves uh, banned from uh, opportunities to drill. So, uh, you know, it's not really a very productive way to proceed. What about the proposal to outlaw price gouging? What impact could that have on American consumers? Let's start with price gouging, which is usually focused on the retail sector. As we told Congressman Conyers, if you just did the simple math, over 93% of the price of gasoline is the feedstock price. It is the cost of buying this crude oil, which is not set in the U.S., it's set on the world market. And this is the, the fundamental problem. In fact, the refining business has not been all that profitable of late. It's been actually, the refiner margins have been quite low. As a result, the fundamental problem is to deal with the feedstock price. And that has to do with putting more crude oil onto the market. There are some members of Congress, though, that say that oil companies have gotten too big and should be broken apart. What do you think of that idea? We have not seen any study by the FTC or any major regulatory group that has shown that the, the fundamental problem is a lack of competition among free enterprise oil companies. The fundamental problem is so much of the world's reserves are now managed by governments which are doing a very poor job of getting these resources developed and moved into the oil market. Well, there is a separate bill out there basically suggesting that more areas of the Outer Continental Shelf and uh, federal lands in the United States should be developed for oil and natural gas. It sounds to me from what you're saying that bill actually could make a difference. Yeah, I think it could make a difference in, in two ways. Of course, it will take time to produce the oil, and this will... This is just a fact of life. We have to, you have to explore. You have to, de you have to develop a, a drilling program, an ex uh, a production program. But to the extent that the U.S. can change expectations in the market, that we in fact are proceeding with a very effective counter-OPEC strategy, that we are bringing some of our own supplies online. Lou, if someone wanted to read your testimony, uh, where would they go? Where would they find it? You know, they can find our testimony on our website on the publication section on eprink, E-P-R-I-N-C dot org. And there they can also find uh, uh, a briefing we gave to uh, members of Capitol Hill uh, staff.
Excellent. Thank you so much. I found this to be a very informative conversation, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.